This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 14 to 23. It's found on page 239 in the Bibles in your rows, uh, if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. So 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight." And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, New City. Uh, My name is Zach, and I'm one of the pastors here at New City. And uh, if we haven't met yet, I'd love to get to meet you. Uh, I typically serve in a role where I'm working with most of our seventh graders up through our seniors. Uh, So if we haven't met, I'd love uh, to get to know you. Uh, So uh, this past week uh, at our staff meeting, sometimes we like to start our staff meetings with a little bit of fun before we get into Uh, the business that we have to attend to. And this week, uh, for some fun, we had a little bit of an icebreaker uh, where we all got a little bit of different questions. No one had the same question. Uh, The first question I had had to do with my uh, belly button lint, um, but thankfully that's not what I'm talking about today. Uh, Actually, I'm talking about the second question I had, uh, which was this. It's a simple question. What one word would you use to describe work? Not your job, but work. And I think this is a great question for each of us to consider this morning as we look at our passage today. What one word would you use to describe work? And I think it's a really difficult thing for us to think of, right? Because for most of us, our relationship to work is really complicated. We can go from feeling very fulfilled in our work in one moment to five minutes later feeling really frustrated with it. And on top of that complication, our relationship with how we work is typically hidden. And it's not visible to others unless people really know us. The people who know us well have seen how we've operated over the years in a variety of different circumstances. They know what kind of person you are with your work. They know uh, whether you get really irritable in your work sometimes. They know uh, whether uh, work tends to occupy a lot of your identity or whether work energizes you or if your work tends to help cultivate relationships in a community around you. Um, These are things that are often unseen and underneath the surface that take a lot of time for us to even observe in ourselves, right? It's our values, our morals, our convictions. Now, Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor, I'm going to be referencing a lot today, uh, and he notes that we tend to neglect how we do our work 
and instead we tend to focus on what we do for our work. He notes that we can tend to use conversations about our job as a front to advertise something that we want people to see in us or believe about us, but in fact, that we've never really bothered to become in ourselves. Right? It's the idea that uh, if people see that I volunteer at a homeless shelter, that they'll think I'm a really good person. Or that if I go to church, they might think I'm a more spiritual person. It's an advertised reality that, of something that really isn't there yet, that we haven't taken time to develop. Peterson goes on to say that talking about work as merely our jobs can be somewhat revealing and expressing, but it's mostly a lot of times concealing and diverting, right? On the surface, our jobs really only tell us what we do, not how we do them, or the state of our hearts. So rather, it's the day-in, day-out relationship with our work that gives us glimpses at what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about others, and ultimately what we believe about God, So today, as we look at our passage, we're going to be seeing how all of work is meant to be an extension of God's sovereignty, and we're going to be looking at that by looking at these three points. First, we'll be looking at what working for God is. Second, we'll be looking at godly working, and then finally, we'll be looking at the working God. So let's start with our first point. So last week, we saw that David was anointed or set aside to go to work for God as his kingly representative to Israel. But before that, Saul had been chosen or anointed uh, for that job, to be the ideal Israelite or the mediating presence of God's kingly presence among his people. And remember earlier in 1 Samuel, um, we know that initially Saul did a really good job at this, right? He defeated his enemies. He protected his people. In fact, he actually uh, restrained himself from taking out uh, rightful anger against rebels from Israel who didn't get behind his kingship in the beginning. And in these ways, he really did demonstrate God's kingly presence to defend his people and to be merciful and to be steadfast in his love and leadership. But it actually doesn't take long before Saul starts to make subtle but yet huge mistakes. It's through the day-in, day-out relationships with his work that truly reveals and expresses his heart. And back in September, we looked at this in depth. Um, But what ends up happening is Saul begins ever so slowly to become more concerned with his work as king and less concerned with God himself. We see Saul becoming more concerned with appeasing the people and less concerned with obeying God. Saul began using God for work instead of using work for God. And twice we saw Saul use worship worship of God as a means to control God's people and to kind of preserve a name for himself. Right? And in the simplest of terms, we see Saul kind of committing a spiritual abuse. He's using the things of God for his own benefit at the expense of those who he should be caring for. And this, uh, unfortunately, should sound pretty familiar to us, right? This is what happens to all of us when we detach the boardroom, maybe the machine shop or the home, from the kingdom of God. And we become so focused on the results of our work, how pleased others are with us, or how we use our work to prove our worth, right? We might not be using the elements of the worship of God to manipulate, but we do use the very gifts that God has given us to manipulate others, to make ourselves feel better about our own selves. Our work, when it becomes our primary means of securing our meaning, moves God to a secondary place. We can usually tell that this is what's going on typically by observing our prayers, right? Um, We tend to uh, pray to God concerning our work uh, about things like, man, I really want this meeting to go well because I really want to feel better about myself, better about the job I'm doing, 
or man, Lord, I really need that parking spot because I'm already 15 minutes late to this meeting. And it's not that those aren't good prayers. It's not that God doesn't care about those things, but it can be kind of a litmus test of like, maybe that's the only thing I really care about is my performance, is the meaning that I get here. We plead with God to make these things work out because we ultimately trust in our work to be the thing that validates us. Work has shifted from being something we use to worship God and instead has shifted to be something we use to worship ourselves. And when we do this, we also work this out in our relationships, right? It's not just in our relationship with God, but it's in our relationship with one another too. We treat relationships as secondary to our performance. At worst, that means uh, we can treat coworkers as a means to attaining our personal and uh, professional goals. We can treat kids as disruptions or as a means of proving our value. We can use friends as objects to bring us uh, joy. And we can also use spouses as trophies or crutches. That is a reality that unfortunately we all know too well, right? That we too commit forms of spiritual abuse all the time, misusing God's gifts and calling on our lives at the expense of our relationship with him and with others. And this is the very error that we see Saul stepping into, right? Of using God and the people he should be leading for his own personal success and validation. And we saw back in September, right? God ultimately confronts Saul. He grieves that this is going on and he intercedes because he's a good God, right? He doesn't want abuse to continue. And in that, he raises up David to be king over Israel. And that's exactly where our text picks up today. God has taken his spirit from Saul and allowed what the text calls for a harmful spirit to come and torment him. Now, it's really easy for us to miss the big picture of this text because when we hear that, that freaks us all out, right? Uh, we all think, oh no, what will the presence of the Lord leave me too? But this isn't a reference to Saul losing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that New Testament believers enjoy, right? This is actually talking about how the Spirit works in the Old Testament, that the Spirit in the Old Testament tends to give people power or uh, presence in, the, in very specific purposes, right? So you can think about how God raises up judges, right, for a specific purpose to defend his people. So in the same way, God's Spirit came upon his king for that same kind of role. So we see Saul no longer occupying that role of anointed king, right? The spirit had left Saul and then now had rushed upon David, as we saw last week. The presence of God has left him in that way. So what we see going on with Saul is especially unique to his calling and failure as a king. And in this spirit's absence, God has allowed a harmful spirit to come upon him. And it's really interesting in reading this because what many scholars believe is that this is a form of spiritual depression. And it's really interesting to note also that they're not trying to despiritualize what, what Saul is going through. And as those who've struggled with depression, we can know, hey, depression actually feels very spiritual, right? It's something that can attack the body and the soul. And so this is meant to be kind of a description of what Saul is experiencing, that he is stung both in his body and soul as the presence of the Lord has departed from him. This is what he is experiencing. And so Saul, the successful, the moral appearing king, is beginning to crumble. He's experiencing the sting of when we use our work in and of itself to fulfill us, and he's also feeling the absence of God. And in this, there's a message for us, that Christian work isn't about being successful, even for kingdom purposes. For all intents and purposes, Saul was a ragingly successful person for the kingdom, right? But there's a lack of substance in his obedience to the Lord that stung his soul. 
Though Saul and David are anointed or being kind of set apart in this unique role of being king, there's also a sense of which all of us have also been anointed or set apart by God's spirit for a particular work in God's kingdom. And today's text is demonstrating that God is much more concerned about what's going on in our hearts, in our work, than actually what the content of our work is. And that is something that we learned last week. Remember in verse 7 when we saw that uh, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So since God is saying to us, it's not what you do that necessarily matters most, but how you do it. And today's text is an encouragement to us to think about how we approach the callings that God has given us. So this text shows us that working for God in our callings isn't necessarily about finding meaning, earning our place, or success. Like Saul and David in their callings, we too are given a variety of different callings as a gift. And as believers, the gospel helps us to understand work not as a context to prove ourselves or secure purpose, but instead a context to enjoy the status of sons and daughters of God. And also the variety of work that he puts before us. So in other words, our value and purpose is secured and work is instead a place for us to enjoy the expression of that value and that purpose. And we can see a little of what that looks like in David's life as we can move to our next point, what godly working looks like. So in this chapter, David is introduced kind of as a contrast to Saul, right? As the new king, now on the scene, he's less flashy. Remember, of all of his brothers, he was the one who looked least like a king. But he's here, and God has called him and anointed him to be king over Israel. And he kind of begins equipping David for this new role that he's been given. And at this point in the story, you might expect David to enter into some kind of prep school for kings or maybe go to some of the most like Ivy League institutions of the day to prepare him for this big role. But what we find God calling David to instead is something very counterintuitive. David is called to go play music for a really depressed king. To go functionally serve as like the Apple Music or Spotify for someone who has a really, really severe case of the blues. Whatever David played, it worked, right? We see that it helped Saul immensely. It made him well and refreshed. So David's first job as the anointed king of Israel is to serve a bad king. And this is not the job that David would have expected. It didn't come with the perks that he wanted as for a king in waiting. It's the exact opposite. And when I first read through this, it really reminded me of the Karate Kid, right? We all know, hopefully you know the Karate Kid. Daniel, he meets Mr. Miyagi and begins learning how to uh, do karate. I don't know if you do karate. He learns karate, right? Um, And he really wants to learn karate for two main purposes. He wants to be able to defeat his enemies and win the girl. And so he goes and he goes to the, the dojo and he's going to learn how to fight. And what does Mr. Miyagi do? He teaches him to paint fences. He teaches him to clean floors. He teaches him to wax cars. How lame is that, right? I want to learn karate. I didn't want to go learn how to paint a fence. And at risk of injecting into the text, I do imagine that David probably felt something like this, like Daniel from The Karate Kid. David's thinking, I thought I would be learning to be a king, not serving a fallen king. And yet at the same time, similar to the Karate Kid, David is being trained to be king without even knowing it. He is learning what Eugene Peterson points out about work, that all true work involves a ruling and also serving. Where we tend to focus on just the ruling part of our work, like Saul, God has designed us also to work as those who serve. 
So in the same way that Daniel, right, the karate kid, is learning to block uh, and punch through all the tasks that Mr. Miyagi gives him, so too David is learning how to do the work of a king, not just in ruling, but also in serving. So as David enters into an unlikely apprenticeship for his kingship, I think there's at least two applications for us in that. First is those who really crave success, advancement, comfort, and notoriety. God is using this passage to remind us that real work, true work, and the way that he designed it to be done can't happen unless we remember the service aspect of our work. That we miss something about him and ourselves and we assume that work is only about ruling. In fact, that is what Saul forgot. He became less concerned with serving God and the people under him and more concerned about his rule and how he could use his work to appease God and man. God is stepping into David's life and into our lives to help us avoid this error. He wants us to know that serving others isn't just a nice thing to do, but it's actually fundamental to who we are and how we work. Second, God is confronting the reality that we hate it when things interrupt our plans for our work. For some of us in this room, you may be uh, currently in a job that feels like a dead end, or you might be in the process of going back to school in order to start a second career or to start a business. Or maybe you're starting a family and work looks a little bit different. Uh, maybe uh, you're a student and you're saying, hey, things will get better when I get to high school, college, when I just start working. And these types of seasons, they can tend to feel uh, kind of more like obstacles in our way to life than actually like life itself. Um, we feel uh, burdened by that and we end up asking God's questions like this. Why am I in what feels like a dead-end job? Why did I go to school the first time if I'm not even working in the industry that I got my degree in? Why did my past career have, what does my past career have to do with this new one? Do I have what it takes to have a family and to live them well? These types of questions make us really, really afraid because we like ruling, right? We like the sense of control and, they, and we really struggle to trust God in moments like these because we feel really disoriented. And I think God is using passages of scripture like this to remind us that he has the big picture in mind. That though we're limited and only able to take what's directly before us, he can handle it all. He's at work. Like the karate kid, like David, God often calls us into periods of apprenticeship where we are learning how to step into our callings in ways that we would never predict. And that's what we're going to see is that he, what he's really doing is he is inviting us to trust him. He's trying to teach us that he is a working God, one that we can trust. So let's look into our last point. So though David is certainly in an unexpected apprenticeship, it's not as those things aren't going well. Uh, he has a couple of successes that we can see in this passage. First, we see in verse 18 that David had won himself a really good name. Like, listen to this description. He was known as a man skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. It's like the Renaissance man before the Renaissance, basically. Second, in verse 19, we see that Saul himself calls David, and in verse 21, that Saul enjoyed him so much, and he's like, I love this guy. David's the man. And finally, we see in verse 23 that David was successful in his duties before Saul, that when the harmful spirit came upon Saul, he played, and it left him. He was refreshed in wells, what it says about Saul. So David might have been waxing cars or, or painting fences, but the text says, hey, he was really good at it. And it seems that his work was paying off. And in particular, what we see here is that God is actually kind of proving out or demonstrating the qualifications of the king that he had just anointed and called, right? We see that David had a good name among the people, 
We see that Saul, the current king on the throne, not only called David there, but also thinks so highly of him that he says he loves him. And then finally, that God is granting David success in his service, so much so to the point where he actually gets promoted to armor bearer. Right? This is proving out the calling that God had placed on David's life. We see in this that despite the feeling of a dead-end job, that God was working in David's work, granting him success, developing his gifts, and leading him to a day when he would at some point sit on the throne that he had already been anointed to rule. And this is a good reminder for us that God is actually at work behind and in our work. Not only is God working, but work is also something that is fundamental about God. Now, when we're first introduced to God in Scripture, we actually meet him as one who works, right? He is one who is creating. He creatively spoke all creation into existence with the power of his word, creating the breadth of the universe, the depth of the seas, the height of our mountains, the intricacies of vegetation and plant life, the awe and wonder of animal life, and the beauty of creating mankind in such a way that his image is indelibly upon each and every one of us. And yet, that's not all. God is also an active worker, right? He hasn't just set things up and walked away from his creation or his people, but he continues to uphold them and work through them. And we often forget this and operate in the belief that we're on our own, and that we're alone having to navigate all the opportunities, obstacles, wins, and losses all on our own. And that's what the spiritual death of sin does, right? It so infects all of our view of work that we are constantly forgetting the one who upholds all. And yet the good news is that we have one who didn't forget and doesn't forget. One who submitted all his work to the Father. One who, like David, is a good example for us. But he actually goes far beyond just being a mere good example. He's also our Savior. And that's what we see when we look to Jesus, our Savior, right? We see one who is just as creative and unstoppable in his work of salvation as he was in his work of creation. Then we see him laboring for our salvation in Scripture. We see one who rules in power by commanding nature, spirits, sickness, and even the hearts of humanity. And yet we also see Jesus as the one who serves in caring for the poor, the widow, the stranger, and those who are broken in heart. But it goes even better than that. It's even better. Because it's not only that God's power is creatively being worked in his creation or in his work for our salvation— we also see it in the way that he's applying that salvation to our lives on a daily basis. The day-in, day-out faithfulness of a master craftsman. Working in our hearts to convince us of his loving kindness that by his spirit, he's helping us to live out in sacrificial obedience in our work. Peterson again reminds us that the sanctuary, right, coming to church is essential for learning and experiencing this reality but it is not the primary location where the Holy Spirit is shaping the life of Christ in us. The main context for that is the office, the shop, the classroom, the home, and our presence among our neighbors and our strangers that are around us. This is the context where, as Peterson says, we bring order out of chaos. We guard and fight for the sanctity of things and people, deliver victims from injustice and misfortune and wretchedness, where we grant pardon to the condemned and damned, heal sickness, and by our very presence bring dignity and honor to people and to our neighborhoods. In work, we're often tempted to make one of two errors, to take our work into our own hands like Saul and to seek to control our work. The other error is to to detach from our work, to give into pessimism and to belittle its importance. And both of these options are results of feeling really overwhelmed. 
and both are also ridiculous. The first option ignores that work by its nature is out of our control. And the second option ignores just how important work really is, right? And what we find in Christianity, however, is something that challenges us. It's a, a third way that's calling us to faithful attendance while at the same time recognizing that God is truly at work. There's a scene in one of the uh, most uh, classic, greatest all-time cinematic adventures, The Lion King. Uh, and in this scene, Simba's in the elephant graveyard. And he's totally surrounded by hyenas who are all mocking him, uh, yelling out at him, all around him. And in this situation, he responds the only way that a lion should respond, right? He roars. So the problem is, he's just a little guy. He's got a little guy roar. It's not very terrifying. The hyenas just continue to laugh at him more and more. But he does the only thing he can do, right? He again kind of buckles up and just gets ready to roar again. And his last hope, right, he comes to roar once more. Except for this time, it's not a little guy roar, right? If you've seen the movie, a huge reverberating roar is unleashed and it frightens away Simba's accusers. It frightens away the death that was coming around him. And Simba's kind of shocked. He's like, did that just come from me? And then we turn, right, and we see what happens. Mufasa, his dad, had actually showed up on the scene, and it was his roar kind of intermingling and mixing with Simba's roar that ultimately pushed back the darkness and the death that was surrounding him. And that is how the Bible is calling us to consider our work, that through God's power, his work comes through our own. It is in seeing this over the years that we grow in our confidence in Christ, that in our fear we don't have to bury ourselves in our work or detach from it, and instead, we can actually take our fear to the God who is really at work. So today's passage is ultimately a reminder for us that God can use a little shepherd boy to rule his people, the small nation of Israel to proclaim his glory, a ragtag team of 12 shabby disciples, and even a simple church in Cincinnati like us. God is at work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you um, have given us your image and made us into workers and give us the joy of work. And Lord, we so lament uh, that sin has broken even the most incredible thing of work. And we experience it on a day in, day out basis, Lord. And yet we also experience your grace. We experience your activity there. We see beauty unfolding. And we pray, Father, that we would be the instruments of your kingdom coming. And that, that would be done not through our our own goodness, our own morality, or our own intelligence, but instead, Lord, that that would come by the power of your spirit and the power of your grace at work in us. And we pray, Father, that you would help us do that by looking to Jesus, who completed the ultimate work on our behalf, and that we would know that the spirit is at work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.